Hello people of the podcast, welcome back to the art of seduction. We are now on the masculine dandy. In the 1870s, Pastor Enrique Gallot was the darling of St. Petersburg intelligentsia. He was young, handsome, well-read in philosophy and literature, and he preached a kind of enlightened Christianity. Dozens of young girls had crushes on him and would flock to his sermons just to look at him. In 1878, however, he met a girl who sort of changed his life. Her name was Louis von Solon, later known as Louis Andrea Solon. And she was 17. He was 42. The Salon was pretty, with radiant blue eyes. She had read a lot, particularly for a girl her age, and was interested in the gravest philosophical and religious issues. Her intensity, her intelligence, her responsiveness to ideas cast a spell over Gillett. When she entered his office for increasingly frequent discussion with him, the place seemed brighter and more alive. Perhaps she was flirting with him in the unconscious manner of a young girl, yet when Gillard admitted to himself that he was in love with her and proposed marriage, Son was horrified. The confused pastor never quite got over Louis von Salon becoming the first of a long string of famous men to be victim of a lifelong, unfulfilled infatuation with her. In 1882, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was wandering around Italy alone. In Genoa, he received a letter from his friend, Paul Rie, a Prussian philosopher whom he admired, recounting his discussions with a remarkable young Russian woman, Louis von Salon, in Rome. Salon was there on a holiday with her mother and had managed to accompany her on long walks through the city, unchaperoned, and they had many conversations. Her ideas on God and Christianity were quite similar to Nietzsche's. And when he had told her that the famous philosopher was a friend of his, she had insisted that he invite Nietzsche to join them. In subsequent letters it described how mysteriously captivating was and how anxious she was to meet Nietzsche. The philosopher soon went to Rome. So already, getting him in the grasp, right? When Nietzsche family met Salon, he was overwhelmed. She had the most beautiful eyes he had ever seen, and during their first long talk, those eyes lit up so intensely that he could not help feeling there was something erotic about her excitement. Yet he was also, also very confused. Salon kept a distance, did not respond to his compliments. What a devilish young woman! 
A few days later, she read him a poem of hers, and he cried. Her ideas about life were so like his own. Deciding to seize a moment, Nietzsche proposed marriage. He did not know that Lee had done so as well. Salome declined. She was interested in philosophy, life adventure, not marriage. Undaughtered, Nietzsche continued to court her on an excursion to Lake Orta with Ri Salome and her mother. He managed to get the girl alone. Accompanying her on a walk up Monte Sacro, while, of course, all of the others, they stayed behind. Apparently the views and Nietzsche's words had the proper passionate effect. In a later letter to her, he described this walk as the most beautiful dream of my life. Now he was a man possessed. All he could think about was marrying Salome and having her all to himself. A few months later, Salome visited Nietzsche in Germany. They took long walks together, stayed up all night discussing philosophy. She mirrored his deepest thoughts, anticipated his ideas about religion. Yet, when he again proposed marriage, she scolded him as conventional. It was Nietzsche's, after all, who had developed a philosophical defence of the superman, the man above everyday morality. Yet Salome was by nature far less conventional than he was. Her firm, uncompromising manner only deepened the spell she cast over him, as did a hint of cruelty. When she finally left him, making it clear that she had no intention of marrying him, Nietzsche was devastated. As an antidote to his pain, he wrote Thus Spake Zarathustra, a book full of sublimated eroticism and deeply inspired by his talks with her. From then on, Salome was known throughout Europe as the woman who had broken Nietzsche's heart. Which, once again, we can sort of see how it plays out, right? Salome moved to Berlin. Soon the city's greatest intellectuals were falling under a spell of her independence and free spirit. The playwrights, Gehirt Hauptmann and Franz Wittkind, became infatuated with her. In 1897, the great Austrian poet, Rainer Marie Reich, fell in love with her. By the time her reputation was widely known, and she was a published novelist, this certainly played a part in seducing Rilke but he was also attracted by the kind of masculine energy he found in her that he'd never seen in a woman. Reich was then 22, Salome 36. He wrote her love letters and poems, followed her everywhere, began an affair with her that was to last several years. She corrected his poetry, imposed discipline on his overly romantic verse, inspired ideas for new poems but she was put off by his childish independence, or let's say, dependence. The one that he had on her, actually, not on himself. But that's what she did not like. She did not like that he depended upon her. That was his weakness. Unable to stand weakness of any kind, she eventually left him. Consumed by her memory, Rilke long continued to pursue her. 
1926, lying on his deathbed, he begged his doctors, Ask Lou what is wrong with me. She is the only one who knows. One man wrote of Salome. There was something terrifying about her embrace. Looking at you with the radiant blue eyes, she would say, The reception of the seaman is for me the height of ecstasy. And she had an insatiable appetite for it. That she did. She was completely a model, a vampire. The Swedish psychotherapist, Paul Jeu, one of the later conquests, wrote, I think Nietzsche was right when he said that Lou was a thoroughly evil woman. Evil, however, in Goethean sense, evil that produces good. Some may have destroyed lives and marriages, but her presence, well, that was exciting. The two emotions that almost every male felt in the presence of Louis-André Salon was confusion and excitement. The two prerequisite feelings for any successful seduction People were intoxicated by a strange mix of masculine and feminine. She was beautiful with a radiant smile and graceful, flirtatious manner, but her independence and her intensely analytical nature made her seem oddly male. The ambiguity was expressed in her eyes, which were both coquettish and probing. It was confusion that kept men interested and curious. No other woman was like this. They wanted to know more. The excitement stemmed from her ability to stir up repressed desires. She was a complete nonconformist, and to be involved with her was to break all kinds of taboos. A masculinity made the relationship seem vaguely homosexual. A slightly cruel, slightly domineering streak could stir up, well, let's say, masochistic yearnings. It did in niche. Solemn radiated a forbidden sexuality, a powerful effect on men, the lifelong infatuations, the suicides, there were several, the periods of intense creativity, the descriptions of her as a vampire or devil, attest the obscure depths of the psyche that she was able to reach and disturb. The masculine dandy succeeds by reversing the normal pattern of male superiority in matters of love and seduction. A man's apparent independence, his capacity for a detachment, often seems to give him the upper hand in the dynamic between men and women. A purely feminine woman will arouse desire, but it is always vulnerable to the man's, well, let's say, loss of interest. A purely masculine woman, on the other hand, will not arouse that interest at all. Follow the path of the masculine dandy, however, and you neutralise all the man's powers. Never give completely of yourself. While you are passionate and sexual, always retain an air of independence and self-possession. You might move on to the next man. Also, he will think. You have other, more important matters to concern yourself with, such as your work. Men do not know how to fight women who use their own weapons against them. 
They are intrigued, aroused, disarmed. Few men can resist the taboo pleasures offering up to them by this masculine dandy. Now, the masculine dandy's keys to the characters, many of us today imagine that, well, I guess sexual freedom has progressed in recent years, that everything has changed, for better or for worse it's changed. That's mostly an illusion. A reading of history reveals periods of, well, let's say imperial, look at imperial Rome, right, late 17th century England, the floating world of the 18th century Japan. Actually, it's been quite more open back then than it is now. Far in excess of what we are currently experiencing, let's say. Gender roles are certainly changing, but they have changed before. Society is in a state of constant flux, but there is something that does not change. The vast majority of people conform to whatever is normal for the time. They play the role a lot to them. Conformity is a consent because humans are social creatures who are always imitating one another. At certain points in history, it may be fashionable to be different and rebellious. But if a lot of people are playing that role, there's nothing different or rebellious about it. We should never complain about most people's slavish conformity, however, for it offers untold possibilities of power and seduction to those who are up for a few risks. Dandies have existed in all ages and cultures, um, ancient Greece even, late 10th century Japan, yep, they were around, and wherever they have gone, they have thrived on the conformist role playing of others. The dandy displays a true radical difference from other people, a difference of appearance and manner. Since most of us are secretly oppressed by a lack of freedom, the lack of being able to do whatever we like, we are drawn to those who are more fluid and flaunt their difference. <clears throat> those who are, well, those that come across, I suppose, more freely, that's the thing of the dandy. The dandy comes across more free and plays with masculine and feminine. So let's say the woman can be domineering, yet very ladylike at the same time and vice versa, which makes them all inspiring to another person. The symbol of the dandy is the orchid. Its shape and colour oddly suggest both sexes. Its odour is sweet and decadent. It is a tropical flower of evil, delicate and highly cultivated. It is prized for its rarity. It is unlike any other flower, just like the dandy. Now, of course, you can't be a dandy if you suffer from something like anxiety, maybe, because you get too stressed, but a dandy's strength is also a dandy's problem. He or she often works through transgressive feelings relating to sex roles. Although this activity is highly charged and seductive, it's also dangerous since it touches on a source of great anxiety and insecurity. The greater dangers will often come from your own sex. Valentino had immense appeals to women, but men hated him. He was constantly dogged with accusations of being perversely unmasculine, and this caused him great pain. 
Salon was equally disliked by women. Nisha's sister, and perhaps his closest friend, considered her an evil witch, and led a campaign against her in the press long after the philosopher's death. So as you can see, the danger with the dandy is the dandy's strength, because in that strength, it generally brings across the other sex disliking you. So if the males are very attracted to you, the females will hate you because they'll presume you are mean words. They won't, you know, that's all they will think about and vice versa. If the women are attracted to you, then you're going to probably get the men who are showing signs that they hate you. That's just one of the normal reactions of being a dandy. And it's something that's very hard to get out of in that dandy state of role. Because you're appealing to certain people. You're not thinking about the larger picture. You're not conforming to society. Which is something I never do anyway. I'm one of a kind. I don't do that. But yeah, the dandy strength is its danger. Because with that strength, they can create a whole lot of hate and campaign against them. You know, like um, back in the day, gangs getting together and being driving someone out of town. It can become that bad for the dandy, usually by the same sex as well, because of the jealousy that is underlining in their persona, because they do stick to society's rules. They do the norm. You do not. Therefore, you are a threat to them, but you are excitement to a man, but you are a threat to women, and vice versa, if the roles are reversed, the same goes. Anyway, that is the dandy. When we come back, we will then start to look at the natural. Thank you for listening, and many blessings.